Welcome back to Sound Methods. Today, I'm joined by Tom Mellick, also known by his pseudonym, Benoit Pillard. Tom is a dear friend and one of my favorite musicians in the modern ambient scene. For 20 years, he's been steadily churning out one beautiful album after another on heavy-hitting labels like Cranky, More Music, Beacon Sound, A Strangely Isolated Place, and many others. All of them in his distinctive, gauzy, tape-drenched style. His songs straddle the line between ambient and folk, with equal amounts of droning atmosphere and structured arrangement. His calming, baritone voice typically adds a wistful, nostalgic elements to some tracks, while bringing a tangible human feel to an otherwise ethereal sound that's primarily captured through tape recorders and other simple, minimal means. He's worked with a huge range of collaborators, such as Raphael Antoni Rosari as Orcas, Jason Cordaire, Sean Curtis Patrick, and Lucine, among countless others. He's also shared stages on national and international tours with Lossel, A Winged Victory for the Sullen, Wendy and Carl, and so many more. Tom has become well known for his exceptional eye for Polaroid photography, with many of his images gracing the covers of not only his own albums, but a host of other musicians in the last few years. I talked to Tom at length about a wide range of topics, including the process and philosophy behind his music, his photography, as well as his recent cross-country move from Seattle to New York. Here's our interview. Yeah, thanks for hopping on, Tom. Appreciate you being here. Uh, I, yeah, it's an honor. I'm pleased you're doing this. <laughs> we um, we go back a long ways. And in thinking about you know the music that you make, I think you have a very unique voice within this quote-unquote ambient space that we kind of both inhabit. You straddle that line between droney ambient sound, but you also have quite a bit of folk and pop almost influence in your music. You know, there's lyrics, there's a clear arrangement and structure that I don't think is present in a lot of other of our peers' music per se, at least not as obviously as some of the work that you do. And so I'm curious how you would characterize the music that you make. Is it ambient? Is it something else? Do you even care uh, what people call it? (laughs) Or is there like a sonic reference point that you're going for? Or is all this kind of just like the natural output of you know, your influences in your work. Yeah, it's much more the latter or like the tail end of what you were saying there. It's a mm-hmm. confluence of things altogether. Cause I was, I was a pretty voracious music consumer, like starting from, I don't know, age seven or eight. I was lucky to have, you know, parents who let me watch MTV in the early nineties, which is a, obviously a very fertile time for like a lot of good, weird stuff that just doesn't enter the mainstream anymore. It seems not to be uh, yep. an old man about it, but. I mean, I've, I, in retrospect, I've come to realize that some of the stuff that I was most like innately attracted to had like a lot of texture going for it. Like my first two favorite records, I think, were In Utero and uh, Breeders' Last Splash, and those are both those both have such like particular production styles, like super raw for the most part, and everything is very distinct and three dimensional, and that's the kind of thing that really like set my brain off from a pretty early age. Uh, and then going forward, yeah, I generally grew up being from you know. Michigan in the 90s like it was a lot of alternative radio and that sort of thing um and then as soon as I 
came upon like those came down to uh, my friend Ryan Jones, who I met in like seventh grade. He transferred from another school, and I think one day was wearing a tool T-shirt or something. So I talked to him in, in the lunch line, whatever, and we became very fast friends. And he had he has like a super weird eye and ear for film and music, and even from that age, when we were awkward, pimply thirteen-year-olds. <laughs> He he also was like a total night owl, so he'd stay up and watch 120 minutes and like have all these recommendations. Like that's how I found out about Apex Twin, the Come to Daddy video was okay. on. Yep. Uh, you know, 2 a.m. on MTV. Sorry for the sirens here. No, you're good. Uh, broken <laughs> after all. And yeah, that I, I think that moment must have been late '97. Discovering Apex Twin was kind of the catalyst for discovering electronic music in general. That was my foot in the door, so to speak. I was obviously aware of that sort of thing. My older brother was pretty active with Detroit raves and drug culture and like super into Plastic Man, which at the time I thought was, it didn't resonate with me. I love that stuff now. Richie Houghton's awesome. (laughs) But yeah, after kind of developing my sense of what you could do without a guitar at that age, I just like dove headfirst into Warp Records and, uh, yeah, just um, less mainstream. Like I had a, I developed a sense of like how to find my own stuff, and so like, you know, Eno and Velvet Underground and uh, Mogwai and Boards of Canada were all just like my f- favorite things. Obviously, kind of all over the map, all, all very renowned. I know those are fairly cliche, but they were all very deeply influential, and especially someone like Brian. You know, when you're talking about the dichotomy of like pop versus more meditative stuff he was a huge inspiration for that like you know not pigeonholing yourself and honestly affects twin too because come to daddy is worlds away from selected ambient works you know yeah Um, but it's the same individual with the same kind of cheeky sensibility doing that work and so that sort of gave me the confidence i would say to just feel things out naturally and I, i always liked writing songs i think probably my biggest songwriting inspiration or at that age might have been phil elvram like those first few microphones records were a huge deal for me speaking of like texture and production i remember reading an interview where he described getting one particular percussion sound by like wrapping a microphone in a plastic bag and dipping it in a bowl of water or something like that you literally just do anything you want to make a sound and at the point that was at the point that i was recording on a four track cassette player i would try to get as many instruments into a piece of music as i could over the course of three or four minutes um, and just do hot swapping tracks while I was mixing down to a tape on my shitty Iowa uh, three CD changer stereo that everybody had in the late nineties. And yeah, it was a lot of fun and I'm grateful that I had that drive and that experience and that and frankly to have parents that were encouraging of that. Cause you know, my, my mom's an old hippie. Um, <laughs> she was the one that got me into piano lessons cause her best friend was, she's retired now, but was a piano, was my first piano teacher. And as soon as I showed interest in that, she just let me do whatever I want. My my dad, you know, was one of those dads that kind of shows his love by buying you things. So I was like, I want a bass guitar. He's like, all right, let's go get you a bass guitar. I want a drum set. Let's go get a drum set. <laughs> kind of thing. So, uh, a huge leg up there for sure. Pretty much since I was like 13, I've been recording the original stuff. I'd start, you know, my first recordings are in a box in the other room that I will never show anybody because they're just like the shitty. Possible covers of challenge accepted. You know what? Yeah, <laughs> maybe one day I'll dig them out. Yeah, but I'm almost yeah, great to, to listen to them. Any case, yeah, this is a very long-winded way of saying it's always been like a pursuit of an organic 
sensibility about yeah. things. Yeah, and, and it comes across very clearly. I, I mean, I think there's it, it's a very distinct. You know, you know, you're listening to you when it comes on. I guess is it, it just strikes me as like a very distinct style. So it's, it it stands out. I think in the crowd that we're usually lumped in with, it, it strikes me as something that is very thought out and methodical in approach. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, I, I, I've tried to, I have the simplest setup you can imagine. I mean, you've been on tour with me, so you can see, you know, my pedal chain has pretty much been the same for a very long time. And as far as production techniques, I have just a minor variations on a bunch of different tape decks and the way that I record them. Like people, a handful of people have asked me over the years, like how I get the certain kind of environment with guitar loops that I do. And it's really simple. It's like one track of taped guitar loops and then a, another track of clean like direct signal and i just blend those together and i have no problem sharing that technique because for one thing it's something you could easily figure out on your own <laughs> but also whoever whoever employs that is going to do a different thing no matter what and it's going to end up sounding different which is something i appreciate one of those things from film school that i always thought was i think it was i can't remember who the, the film theorist was but the idea was that information wants to be free, basically. Mm. And that you should be, like, if you're in a creative field, like, you should have no problem sharing every detail of what you do because, again, those rules put in someone else's hands are going to yield a different result. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, I think we all learned to do what we do from some extent by watching and copying other people that we admire or respect. Mm -hmm. And it's, I don't know, I don't see the benefit in being closed off about this stuff. I'm right there with you. It doesn't make sense to me to not share if people are interested and curious. I think it's totally fair game to to open that door a little bit and let them in. Yeah, but in my, in my speaking of the limited palette or the limited uh, kind of setup that I have, it's important to me in making things that I know how to get the sounds that I want, you know, especially when I'm making more elaborate, like guitar, vocal percussion songs, that sort of thing is, you know, having that set of tools that I'll reorient and create a different sounding composition altogether. But I don't know, like working with Raph on the Orcas stuff is a totally different experience because he's a wizard for one thing. And <laughs> it, like I, I, for years, like I've known him for 15 years at this point and our last record came out 10 years ago already, which is crazy. Wow. But, um, and by the way, we just got, masters but they need a little tweaking uh, i'm sure you'll hear them soon um oh amazing i can't wait <laughs> yeah that, that song that song you played on um is in the running for a single so we'll see how that goes cool um but yeah like since i've been working with him since like 2009 or 10 i've been i've always had in the back of my mind like this is the year i'm gonna learn ableton and it just never happens because it spooks <laughs> me like it spooks me when i see how much you can do with that and i would just go down endless uh, you know rhizomes of yeah treatments and and side chains and all that sort of thing that's how you get some of the most interesting sounds but it's also kind of comical when raf gets tired of working on one particular thing and he'll just like whip out a song in five minutes and it's the best sounding thing you've <laughs> ever heard yeah it's it's a dangerous game you play the more you know the more you think you have to do and i think there's a real beauty and power in staying simple so i have nothing but respect for guys like you who can just recognize this is what I need. This is what I'm going to use. I'm just going to do it. I'm the kind of person who will very much spend 
way too much time in the details and forget about what it is I'm even trying to do after a certain point. So I think that's a really important thing to be cognizant of. Yeah, one one thing that has kind of dragged to me, though, is the fact that, you know, I put a fair amount of effort into getting certain sounds from tape machines. And, you know, I'm familiar enough with my Marantz to know when to bend a pitch or whatever. You know, it's all very manual and tactile. But there are so many, I think you even shared a video or a capture from something you were working on with one of the tape built-in, like, tape emulators. And those yep. things sound so good. I can't fade those. But <laughs> and it's like probably way more controllable even than a real tape. Um, so however you get into it, I mean, like AI and emulation is a totally different conversation. But Yeah, no, I, I think it's, there's so many options these days. It's really all about, about comfort. And just, I was talking about this with someone who asked me sort of a related question just about stuff that I use. But I, I said, I still think that, you know, for all the things that are available to us and everything that we can use these days with how good software is, it's still, I think priority 1A is just making sure that you are comfortable and confident. And, you know, if you need a piece of software to feel that way, that's great. If you prefer to use a a physical tape deck to do that, have at it. But I just, yeah. yeah, like I said before, just accepting and knowing what you prefer amongst an ocean of possibilities, I think is really important, especially these days. Yeah. I I could be fooling myself to a degree, but I do feel like you can kind of innately sense when something is uh, fully analog versus treated. Like, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels like he can uh, like instantly pick out a MIDI sound. Like I think the most grating sound in the world is MIDI strings, probably (laughs) like out of the box. Or like, or like MIDI woodwinds, if you don't it's treat them at all. Really um, easy to mess that up, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe my perception of that is outdated, because I know there are vastly like updated versions of MIDI. Like I've heard piano emulators that sound very convincing uh, in recent years. So like even down to the like Nils Fromm kind of, you can hear the hammers on the strings kind of thing. I have Nils's yeah piano library, Noir, and I use it constantly. It's by far, okay. my opinion the best sounding software piano I've ever used. I mm-hmm. don't feel a need, feel a need to buy anything else at this point. So <laughs> right. yeah. It is kind of crazy that as a, you know, as a traveling musician, you can pretty much carry an entire, what used to be an entire like U-Haul truck full of stuff on a laptop these days. <laughs> I love it. I have a 200 pound Rhodes piano sitting behind me and it blows my mind that people used to cart those into you know, vans and load them onto stages night after night on tour. And now I can literally pull out my phone and play (laughs) a a Rhodes uh, software instrument that sounds just as good. It's just incredible to me. Yeah, I don't know if she still carries it with her. Maybe it's only when she's playing near Astoria, but like Liz Harris, I've played a few shows with her where she she needs like another, at least another person to help her load out the... huge thing and get it on stage <laughs> but respect i mean there's there's you know again there's nothing like playing the real thing the feel of the keys and all that but if totally. you're just going for pure for the the sound like yeah there are other methods absolutely i i wanted to touch on something there's a couple different ways i wanted to go with a lot of the points you just brought up but you did bring up raf and the work you do with him with orcas and i know he's kind of your he's one of my go-tos as well, but in terms of mastering and, and mixing assistance, I mm-hmm. know he's pretty involved. How much, 
outside influence do you pull into your own work? Um, do you think about soliciting feedback first, or is that only something that you do if you feel like you really need to do it? How self-guided in your decision-making are you with your music? These days, yeah, it's, I, well, I guess historically I've always just worked all the way through to the end of a piece and then shown it to people. And so, you know, maybe there's mixing feedback. You know, Raph is certainly somebody I trust more than just about anybody else in terms of that kind of feedback. And also I think coming back to my limited sound source palette, whatever you want to call it, yeah. that sometimes frustrates him a bit because I'm still, you know, 20 years on, I'm still kind of an amateur and I use GarageBand for everything. And like when we were mixing the record I did for more music last year, the one Dedic. I, I mixed everything myself and then took it to him just to basically sweeten and master it. And he's like, can you give me stems for all of these songs? And I'm like, no, there's 17 songs <laughs> with like 20 plus parts each. I'm like, I'm not going to stem all that out just so you can mix it. I mean, granted, I'm sure his mix would sound amazing, but that would just, that would be another several weeks of work that I can't pay for. I'm just like, like there's a certain aspect to the autonomy or whatever, the, the authorship if that's a word. Right, um, right. Of, ha of having control over the mix that is part of what I want to express in the songs. You know, that's like, I think it's become, to, to my understanding, it's become kind of a mark of my vocal work that the vocals are in a certain place in the mix that they're just slightly out of intelligibility yeah. a lot of the time, which is counter to the fact that I spend so much time on my lyrics, but, you know, it's just part of it is that I, I don't consider myself like a singer first and foremost. It's just something that, uh, comes into there because I get, you know, I feel lucky that I get melodies running through my head all the time. And sometimes they come, say, come first. Sometimes there's the chord structure in place and something will just like settle into that. But that's like one of the, one of the funnest things. I mean, bass lines are still my favorite thing to record in, in those songs, but they're also, again, get kind of buried in the mix there. Yeah. But for the most part, everything gets like assembled, baked, comes out of the oven, and then I get feedback at the point that there's nothing I can really do. But I, I will say, you know, for example, if you look at my Bandcamp page more recently, like chronologically in the last five years or so, there's been a lot more collaboration. And I, I feel like I'm at a point where that's a natural evolution from like doing things totally solo for so long. And like I've collaborated here and there over the years, but there are more people in my orbit for one thing, I guess, in the last little while. I'm honestly kind of surprised that we haven't worked together really other than like, you know, compilations. I know we got to correct that. <laughs> I did one track with Steven for a compilation at the beginning of lockdown, but yeah, but like working with Boris jogging house the other year, that tape came out really nicely. Just like in the last couple months, I've put out records with Zach Hay, uh, Zach Frizzell, another human angel. And, and then off this guy, Jason Corder, who I've liked and been, we've been sort of been in the same circle for, at least 10 years at this point I've, I've known about his stuff i think we played the same festival in denver in like 2015 but i, I knew his stuff before that and yeah working with him was great and laps the french label put out a really beautiful package for us yeah um, i love that new one it's so good oh thanks yeah but it's and it's mostly like that's actually you know you're speaking of the weirdness of 2020 and 21 and i still feel like it, the influence of the insularity of that period is still enacting itself. Like I, I only just worked with Luke in person for the first time, like two weeks ago when we were finishing the piece, a piece for a, a past inside comp yeah. or like a split 12 inch. He and I made this like 20 minute piece that was 
ambitious, but I think came out well. I, <laughs> I like it anyway. It's never for me to say whether it's good, but it, it was what we wanted, and it's very different from the record we did for Strangely Isolated Place. Anyway, that was my first experience, basically collaborating in person with somebody since lockdown, other than Raph, which counts, of course. But yeah, I just like I got it so in my head during that period that like, well, this is just how it's always going to be now. No more tours, no more like in-person sessions, and it's tough. That's tough to like extract yourself from. Right. I, I was um, talking about this with someone else the other day too, but I, yeah, I feel like 2020 hit. There was an initial shock. Everyone kind of retreated into their little ambient drone shells and there were tons of music coming out at that time and then at a certain point i don't know exactly when but it just feels like all of a sudden the number of collaborative releases uh, across all genres really but especially in the i think our little ambient world it seems like the number of them just exploded and it feels like everyone was reaching Mm -hmm. out to everyone i know i did a lot of work with other people too after that time and i feel like it kind of opened people's minds to that possibility after being locked down and shut in for so long it does feel like there's a little more of a collaborative spirit in the air these days yeah it might have come down to like the baseline knowledge that most people you kind of know aren't really up to much right exactly (laughs) Uh, (laughs) how different could their life be from mine at this point yeah (laughs) yeah that's that's, i mean that's that again is that's part of the reason i know before you weren't recording earlier when we were talking about my career shift but like you know lockdown stopped me from being able to work in service and work in like live performance so that like i barely scraped by on passive income and like really trying to hustle, you know, self-released stuff during that phase. You know, I got a little bit of help from family that I'm grateful for, but yeah, that really sucked. And that, that's part of the, that entered into the decision to like have a more stable career. So like going into teaching makes sense from that perspective too, you know, getting married in a few months and having an eye on, you know, getting a house upstate one of these years yep. eventually. But yeah, it's just like that really, as I'm sure I'm not the only one, gave me a different view on what it means to be stable and what things are that you think, you know, there's never, there's always going to be service jobs, but then for a year and a half, there just weren't, you know, yeah. <laughs> actually, or at least not safe ones. Yeah, uh, you, absolutely. You be like an Uber ever, yeah. <laughs> so that's, it's been a long time coming and there's, there are silver linings from lockdown, but it's like, I wouldn't do it over, let's say. Yeah. Speaking of New York, where you are now and lockdown, correct me if I'm wrong and I'm getting the timeline wrong here, but I believe, I remember, I think you moved out there right before COVID-19 hit. Yeah, that's accurate. Yeah, August, the August before. So I was was here for like seven months or so. And I was, yeah, I, I, you know, was in Seattle for seven years almost before that. And it was a big change. Um, And I came out here, I had saved up a little bit of like a nest egg. Um, to live on. I was like, I'm going to give myself six months to like familiarize myself with the city, go to a bunch of museums, you know, f- figure out all, all the best bike routes in Brooklyn that I can find and <laughs> that sort of thing. And it'll be a blast. And it was those first six months were very, indeed very fun. And then all of a sudden it was like, as I was thinking like, all right, the coffers are getting a little tight right now. I need to start having a regular one. And that's the point that like, it's was like, all right, I guess I'll just play Animal Crossing all day instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I I wanted to ask you how that move to New York specifically affected, if it did at all. I don't know. It did. How did that change kind of your creative process? Was your does your studio in New York look a lot different than your studio in Seattle, or how, or even like your surroundings and your environment? Does that come into play in terms of what you're making, when you're making it, how you're making it? I'd be really curious to hear how 
the New York Tom differs from the Seattle Tom creatively? Yeah, I mean, the proximity to nature, I think, did have its influence in Portland and Seattle, for sure. You know, I spent more of my days off, uh, like taking a picnic lunch to the beach, you know, in Seattle, for example. But, you know, there's there, there's a beach here, it's a different one. And there are a few forests, believe it or not, nearby. There's one in, in Queens that's like a, I don't know, maybe a 25-minute bike ride for me. That's huge and like pretty quiet and has a really nice trail system. So I spend as much time there as I can. There's also Prospect Park has a pretty huge forested area in the middle of it and a nice little like lake with swans and so forth to sit by so it's different but there are resource like natural resources around here i gosh as far as changes in the music i don't know my my techniques are so kind of entrenched in what i do that i don't feel like that's had a major influence the the, the one uh major alteration i made is when i was recording idetic in 21 and 22 the main sessions like I wrote everything at home sitting on the couch you know just like working everything out so writing was all at home but then I booked just like a super cheap Airbnb cabin in the middle of the woods in Maine for two weeks in March of each year 21 and 22 and recorded about half the record each time I actually this is one instance where I got a very significant piece of feedback from both Molly my partner and and Raf is that I went up there for that first trip in 2021 for two weeks came back with i think seven songs and like a bunch of instrumental stuff and was like cool i was satisfied with that i had you know a 42 minute record that i felt was ready to go and molly was like what if you did five more songs and i was like i don't have five more songs and she was <laughs> like well just write more <laughs> that's one funny thing about rap because he's not you know he makes incredible music but he's not a, a songwriter so to speak yeah yeah um and he, th- he thinks there's some infinite well of that <laughs> But all it took was for the two of them to be like, no, you should like, you should aim higher and make a full record, you know, similar to the one, the early ones that I did for Cranky rather than like have strictly half ambient, half vocal. So consequently, I spent the next three months just like zoning in and wrote what I would say are my favorite songs on that record. I just kind of went off that energy inspiration and, and then booked. I was like, well, the first trip to Maine went really nicely. Might as well do that again when the time comes. And sure enough, I did the same thing the following year and at the same cabin. Um, which had, you know, no running water, a little outhouse for me to use. <laughs> he had luckily had heater, a heater and Wi-Fi, which is all I really needed. So, um, and pretty reliable electricity. There was one like ice storm that took out the electricity for a day. But oh, wow. That was fine. <laughs> On behalf of all of us, I'd like to thank Molly and Raf for encouraging you to <laughs> add those additional songs. <laughs> Cause yeah, I, I think that is one of, 100% one of your, your strongest records to date and i remember i think you shared the some of the early demos with us or i think they were close to finished mixes at that point when we were in the mm-hmm. tour van driving through god knows where in california mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was a yeah really beautiful record and i yeah, really thanks, think that you benefited artist to artist it seems like that time was really fruitful for you that you got to spend up there in maine working on that it's a yeah it, it sure was. I, I, I benefit from the world. It was just a total lack of distractions. Like there was literally yeah. nothing I could do that. I, I would leave the cabin every like three to four days to go get more firewood and groceries because the grocery store was like 17 miles away or something. You know, oh, wow. there's, there's no, no town, no nothing. It was pretty great. Just a Creek running outside. And yeah, I would say that is other than maybe Lasted, which is a record I put out in like 2010. That's Edetic is probably the record I consider the most like, exemplary for what I want to bring into the world, essentially. Like, mm. There is a balance 
there's an interjection of ambient stuff in there, but like those are the songs that I, I feel are most meaningful. And I honestly, it's just getting older, I imagine, but like I can't imagine how I made a vocal record every like two years for a while because this one took seven years. And consequently, I feel like there there is, it's like more fully fledged. Yeah. If that makes sense. I put a lot more time into the lyrics and like the subject matter came from a lot more meaningful life experience. Like, you know, my first record for Cranky was basically a breakup record. So it's just sad sack, you know, 21 year old, year old romantic Tom. And this, you know, that record has a lot more about family and, and loss and grief and like very like transitional, more like profoundly uh, felt emotions, I think. In that. Sure. And it consequently felt like that much more cathartic to have it finished and out there. Yeah, that actually brings up a point that I wanted to ask about in a slightly different way. But to kind of piggyback on that thought, you go through a process like that, you've put a lot of energy and time into something, it's released out into the world. Where do you, you know, go to recharge from an experience like that? I know you're Polaroid photography is a, a big part of what you do. You're involved in a lot of different collaborative work, but how long does it typically take you to like recharge yourself after an experience like that? And you put so much energy and time into something. Are you even thinking about the next solo thing at this point? Or do you think you're going to need more time to do that? I'd be curious to hear your perspective on that. Well, yeah, right now with you know, wedding coming up and master's program coming up, I'm giving myself the space to like not worry about that so yeah. much. I'm still making things like bears mentioning that I've got that Bandcamp subscription thing. So most of the music that I put out, like I put out at least one new song, generally one, sometimes two new song, like uh, new songs as an exclusive for the people that subscribe to me on there, who I'm hugely grateful for because they, you know, they pay for my groceries at least every month. Yep. And some of the some of the bills here, so it's a big deal. And it's not lost on me. I try to make it worth their while. So that that also allows me some freedom. Like if I just decide I have a free afternoon and I don't have anything else going on, I'll just step into the little studio space I've got and make something. And you know whatever comes out is unless it really sucks or something interferes or there's like I don't know something off about it. It's generally at least worth sharing as a kind of view into the process, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but as far as the question about recharging, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, That's another thing that I feel like has to come from a sense of intuition. It's like, you know, when you feel like it and you generally kind of know when you don't. I used to get really bothered by uh, ruts in between recording or like if I wasn't feeling inspired or I was, you know, it was like, I, I want to write a song this month. Like by the end of the month, if I set that goal and I didn't meet it or whatever came out was just half-baked, I'd get really disappointed. But I've come to be a lot more um, kind to myself about mm-hmm. the fact that there are peaks and valleys with that. And having something like photography as a, um, a similarly um, soul-feeding pursuit. Yeah. I don't know if there's a better way to say that. But something that I enjoy doing that expresses a similar passion for, like, analog aesthetics and that sort of thing um and that also allows me to deduct supplies from my taxes um (laughs) kind of nice to have so like i'll go into photo mode especially in the like spring and summer when the light is better because especially using polaroid it's a little more temperamental molly is also an analog photographer she's got a a yashica and a a really nice old nikon 35 millimeter we're actually shooting planning to shoot press photos with raf next weekend which will be fun. He's always, I don't know, more, 
<laughs> doesn't strike me as something he would be thrilled to do, but yeah. <laughs> And it's not his favorite. I was trying to think of a kind way to say that. You, 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 you look, forward, look forward to some scowls. If you're listening, Raph, we love you. So yeah, having multiple pursuits. I mean, I'm, I'm also like, I spend a ton of time in the kitchen as much as I can too. So like that's, that is as much yeah. creative expression as anything else. Finding new recipes, improvising, that sort of thing. And it's also, that's an act of caring that I, that means a lot to me. I took one of those Enneagram tests and it labeled me as a caretaker, like as a. Oh yeah. Yep. As my primary trait, which I, I feel like is fairly accurate. And that tracks, yeah, definitely. Care, yeah. yeah, I think I'm a nine on the Enneagram. I can't remember what that correlates to exactly, but yeah. I do remember the number. Yeah. The Polaroid stuff, though, I wanted to ask a little bit about that. I, it's almost, to me, like an inherent part of the music. That, like When I hear your music, I almost think of your photography like in the same kind of instant you know the music sounds like the polaroids look like and i think they're like so linked in my head that i almost think of them as very much partner art forms i'm i'd be curious to hear your perspective how much do you separate those two things from one another because i know they they often find their way the polaroids into like album artwork or little ephemera that comes packaged with the releases that you do do you see any distinction there or do you view them as almost like a joint artistic practice for you yeah, I think it's a, a side of the same coin, I would say. And it's, that means a lot to you. Thank you for, mm-hmm. uh, or at least I'm glad it resonates that in that way. Because it, yeah, it makes sense to my brain. I'm, I've always been like a pretty, I had a very like integrated audiovisual brain. That's part of the reason that I pursued film in school, because like film and you know, images and sound just make sense together to me. It's like not quite to the point of synesthesia or anything like that. But yeah, it's always been, it's always been the case that like, I think, even though all, almost all of my record covers, with a few exceptions, are Polaroids that I've taken. So I'll even be surprised by which ones come out, and I'm like, that one has to be the one. Like, even with Eidetic, that doesn't really look like any of my other record covers, but there's a combination of the softness of it and the fact that it, I took it from, like, this little bridge over a creek in a park that my dad and I used to hike in when I was a kid. And it was at the time that he was sick, and he passed last year, so, you know, it becomes all the more mm. meaningful. I've tried to always keep that sense of posterity in mind which has a lot to do with you know the, the look of old photos too can uh, especially you know certain polaroids come out and they immediately look like they're 20 years old which i love and you know it's, it, I, I developed i never really took portraits of people until after my brother passed in 2016 and i realized i didn't have like a good photo of him and that made me kind of sad so it's like I, I resolved to try to get as many portraits of people as i can you know you've let me take shots yep. of you and the other guys on, on tour. Some of those came out really nicely. I love that photo I took of the three of you on the cliffside in Big Sur. That was pretty awesome. Oh, me too. Uh, it's still one of my <clears> favorites. Yeah. I'll have to include some of those in the the article that I post this with on my yeah, Substance yeah, page. I'll make sure to include some of those photos. Yeah. And so, yeah, in the other room in our bookshelf, I've got like a whole shelf of binders of all my Polaroids. Some like the, there was the book that I did for, the more music publishing arm a few years ago for the Silva record and another whole book's worth that I wanted to publish alongside Eidetic, but they didn't have the budget for not to slag them off, but it's not their fault. It was, I think it was exorbitantly expensive to do a short run of books like that, but I'm grateful for the, very grateful for the one they did. I just have to figure out what to do with the, all the shots that I've got for what was supposed to be the next one. And then I've got a few other binders of just ones that I've kept over the years from traveling and touring and, various other experiences, but then I've got two whole binders of just people at this point. And that's 
I hate to keep harping on lockdown, but like during lockdown, those were like a nice resource to have on the shelf just to pull down and, you know, remember all the good people in my life that I don't get to see necessarily, but that are still there. And, you know, it was a good motivator. You know, it never costs you anything to send somebody a text when you're thinking about them or give them a call or whatever. Absolutely. I think it, it always means a lot to me when somebody randomly just reaches out and it's like, hey, this made me think of you or just like, hope things are good even that sort of thing i'm right there with you yeah it's weird because it's never been easier to reach people but at the same time i feel like it's it's almost because of that we take it for granted and i think it's actually kind of psychologically more difficult to remind ourselves that we do need to do that more often yeah so it it all i guess if we're looking for a connection of everything here it all comes down to documentation like that's something i've i'm really grateful at this point being almost 40 that i've got you know, diaries uh, or journals, whatever you want to call them, going back to age 13 or 14. Um, again, probably not something I want to revisit unless I'm prepared to cringe a little bit. But there's, you know, there's journals, there's all the boxes of tapes that I've got from over the years. There's the records that I've properly released and have released for me by some of the nicest, coolest people in the world. And there, and then there's my, you know, books of photos. So there's, you know, I'm going to have a lot of crap that people need to get rid of when I die, but I, I love having it all around. And it, for me, there's like, there's a, a vain pursuit of continuity in life. Like for one thing, I don't understand how people get through life without some kind of creative expression, no slight to anybody who doesn't like actively work creatively, but it's like, I don't know who I'd be without that stuff. And I've been you know very lucky to have anybody care at all. And it just like looking back on certain things and, it's weird to consider that I was the same person that made certain things that I have made. Uh, yeah. And there are certain records and certain songs that I listen back to occasionally and don't like, I have no memory of making them. Um, <laughs> which is, that brings in that brings up a lot of like philosophical existential questions that we don't have to get into here. Yeah, absolutely. I wish we could. I wish I had all the time in the world. I, that, that brings up a funny point. I think I was talking to Taylor Dupree about this one time, but he was saying something mm-hmm. to the effect of if, I don't enjoy listening to the work that I make until I forget how I made it. So you're almost <laughs> right. like you're thinking about like all the things that you could or would do differently in the moment because you remember the specific things that you did when you were doing it. And there's almost like a certain level of detachment that has to come. And I totally agree with that. At least for me personally, it feels like I need to like let it live on its own for a little bit and step back and then listen mm-hmm. to it later before it, it comes into full focus almost. So it's an interesting thing to, to think about. Yeah. Looking back at some of the things I've made in the past, it's, I don't really recognize who that person was or what they were going through, but it's still really interesting to have that documented in some way. This just makes me think of, I, I, I think mostly in like late high school, um, I totally idolized Harmony Corinne, the film director, at the point that like Gummo and Julian Donkey Boy came and he made this record in, I want to say, 99 with Brian DeGraw from Gang Dance called the Sob Songs. And it came out on the short-lived record label that Other Music ran. I think it was called Ohm Platten. And it's this like 27-minute album that is that plays this one single track, but it's just a bunch of little movements and experiments and living room recordings that I totally loved just because it. if you're speaking about like cross-pollination in aesthetic, it's like it perfectly expresses like the album version of Gummo to me, which I know is a very divisive film, but it's one of my favorites. Yeah. And I remember reading an interview with him, with Harmony Corinne, like a few years after that came out. Um, and I think the interviewer asked him, like, how do you feel about Sob Songs these days? Are you going to make another record? He's like, oh yeah, I never even listened to that one. 
like <laughs> just <laughs> made it and shut it up. And who knows? He's one of those one of those people. Like you know, I fixed Twitter early read, and where you never know how much truth they're actually telling. Uh, right, that's kind of the part of the appeal. <laughs> but I yeah. like that idea of just like, yeah, we're going to make this record. Sure, you can release it. No, I'm not going to listen to it. Totally. You brought up some of the portraits that you've taken when we toured together. And so I was thinking about the next question to ask here. And when we have toured together, I'm always impressed and struck by the way that you can always sound like you, regardless of the room that we're playing in or the the lineups that we've been a part of. We've seen a huge range of <laughs> places and experiences together but it's still like it's still like undeniably you i think when you play and mm. there's like a very distinctive trait about your music that always comes through regardless so i'm curious to hear you speak about how much of your set is sort of improvised in the moment or adjusted to fit the space that you're in or the people that you're around and how much of it is like a pre-planned exercise? Do you think it's like a, do you go in like with a well-rehearsed set that you're trying to execute or do you leave yourself room to like make adjustments as you go? Yeah. Well, I, again, appreciate that. You're so complimentary. I mean, it. it's a combination of, of all that. There is like, so yeah, generally, especially if I'm going on tour, I try to have a couple variations on a set ready to go. The biggest asset or like the only time I really majorly changed my live setup is when I discovered and bought the Electro Harmonica EX or EHX 22500, not the most memorably named pedal, but it's this uh, great little sample rig where you can operate off an SD card. So there's like a ton of memory and you can basically loop something for as long as you need to. I put like entire ambient pieces on there, you know, 10 minute things. If I have a if I want to just like walk off stage at the end of the show and yeah, do something yeah. running <laughs> short of like, cause I've never used a laptop other than maybe like my first couple of shows back in 2006. I thought that was the thing to do, but other than that, it's always just been pedals and, and voice, <clears throat> but yeah, the part of the reason, and it's always been my excuse for not putting together like a small band to play my songs is that I really like the ability to adapt and improvise and kind of go off the cuff and, you know, if there's a section that I'm working with guitar and prof or something that's working out particularly well, I can just roll with it for a while and let myself feel out the, the pacing uh, a little better. But generally, I would say like my live sets are structured based on the vocal songs that I want to play. I'll usually have, you know, six to eight of those prepared and do like four to five during a given set. If it's like 45, 50 minutes, that sort of thing. Yep. I mean, my favorite set length is like 35 minutes. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, sometimes they'll request that you play a certain amount, whatever. And so, yeah, being able to improvise and decide that I only want to play one song sometimes is, is a nice way to have it. And I do also generally have, you know, my maps are more like flow charts, how I have the set together. It was like, you know, this setting on the 22500 is in this key. So I could connect this song to that one, or I could go over here. It's very like choose your own adventure, which makes it fun. And especially it's been a, quite a while since I've done like a longer tour my last like actual multi-week tour was in 2017 in europe but when you're playing you know 20 shows over a few weeks it keeps it interesting you know to be able to change it up every night or something totally different and honestly like one of my favorite shows for a lot of reasons that i ever played i can't remember the, the name of the venue but it was in toronto the night before my brother's funeral weirdly like obviously very heavy energy 
on my part, but I, you know, he passed before I was going on this tour. I wrung my hands and like had a long talk with my mom about whether or not I should even play the first few shows because it was like he died on March 6th of that year. I uh, left for the tour on March 9th and had like five shows before I got to Michigan where she was my mom. And I was like, I could just come straight to Michigan. And she's like, you know what? I think you should try to play like the first couple shows, see how it feels and go from there. And sure enough, it was like the, exactly the catharsis I needed because there was nothing to be wow. done. You know, he, he had passed, he was, you know, cremated and his service was a couple weeks later. So it worked out that I did cancel, I think three shows in the middle after the Toronto show, but the night of the Toronto show, this was preordained, but they had it set up in such a way that they told me not to sing. The whole idea is like, these are shows where the performances are instrumental and the, uh, the people attending are not allowed to talk. They hand out like, they, they give you a little stack of um, index cards and a pencil when you go in. So if you want to say something to somebody, write it down and pass them the index card, they like write their response and give it back to you. And I just like, I fucking let, loose like i played probably the loudest like ben frost guitar set i've ever done <laughs> total one-off like not recorded i just like felt it out i faced the wall the entire time i think i probably cried just like i finished and like took a huge breath like at the time i was smoking so i went outside and probably had like five cigarettes afterwards and then like <laughs> went home and had you know a, a very emotional experience the following day and a few days afterwards but like, yeah, that's, that show is like the perfect example of how sometimes it can be the greatest outlet in the world to just, I would have done that by myself, but having a room full of people to experience that with was particularly meaningful. And it is, yeah, it's nice, it's nice to work in multiple modes too, to be able to adapt when they're like, could you just do an entirely instrumental set? And like, yeah, totally. Sometimes that's, there's less pressure uh, when that's involved. Yeah. Cause I'm not a, I'm not a trained singer. Sometimes my voice doesn't want to behave if I, you know, I, I forgot that I was playing in an hour and I have a slice of pizza, like the cheese can make me sound weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My wife was a theater kid growing up and she, it, she's a phenomenal singer, but I've seen all the tricks that they do, the, you know, lemon drops and stuff, they, the throat coat stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, taking care of your voice is that's a legitimate full-time conscious thing that you have to work at to keep it ready to go like that. I used to be very bad about that. Like first, the first national tour I did in like 2010 when I was by myself driving, you know, 10,000 miles around the country. I, I was, I think I was just intoxicated by the very fact of being on tour and being out on the yeah. road and alone and like having people show up to see me. I mean, that was playing shows for, you know, 20, 25 people, which is nothing crazy, but it's just, yeah, it's smoking lots of cigarettes, drinking lots of whiskey, barely sleeping a lot of the time and not doing any vocal exercises. So I'm sure I sounded like garbage certain nights, but <laughs> um, who knows? That's long in the past. I'm sure nobody, well, hopefully nobody remembers. <laughs> but you know, over the years, like, I think what really kicked my butt into gear with caring a little bit more about that was the year, must've been the year after that, when I went out with uh, Winged Victory for the Sullen and Ken Camden, and I was like, you know, Adam Wilsey is one of my guitar idols. So when he asked me to do that tour, I was like, all right, better get my shit together. Started learning how to properly do a vocal warm up and that kind of thing. Learned to breathe better from the diaphragm and all that. And that kind of just set me up for knowing how to do that on future tours. And I feel like not being a natural performer, it certainly helped me elevate my performance standards after that. Yeah. That would incite me to get my act together too. <laughs> That's a that he's a hero of mine as well. So I resonate yeah. with you there. 
<laughs> that, was a, that was a very fun trip. That was another one where like, I, I feel like I generally brought my best. There's only one show on that tour. I remember really being down on myself because I don't know, just tech, technical issues and so forth. Yeah. But in general, like I was, I feel like I was the most consistent on that one. And there was even, you know, I assumed uh, across the whatever, two and a half weeks we were on the road that they at least it was possible that Adam and Dustin weren't paying attention to what I was doing and just like preparing for their own set. But I remember I had this distinct feeling of absolute joy when we played our show at the triple door in Seattle and I finished my set, went upstairs to like the green room where they have the sound piping in and Adam was just like sitting there on his phone, but he looked up and he goes, that was your best set of the tour. And I was just like, Oh my God, thanks dad. It's like to know in that moment that he had been listening and that he actually had, you know, positive feedback was great. And that's all he said ultimately. But I was just like, you know, of course, being 26 or 27 at the time and having a lot of self-doubt and like being in the presence of someone that I really, you know, wanted to impress. I just, I was like, man, what if he hates it? What if he totally regrets bringing me on the road? And yeah, maybe he did because we haven't toured since then. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> that was my total blast. Very fun trip. And especially the ladies that played strings with them became good friends of mine too after that. Mm. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And I think it, it actually kind of leads into the next question that I wanted to ask. But I mean, you've been able to work with a pretty incredible range of not just collaborators, but touring partners as well. I know you've done a tour with Scott and Lossel for the Cranky 20 <laughs> thing a couple of years back. You've, Like you said, you've been to Europe a couple of times. You've done stuff with Wendy and Carl. <laughs> stuff that to me is like kind of, yeah, just like off the charts cool mm-hmm. so at this point what do you think is next for you like we've talked a lot about collaborations we've talked a lot about uh, your recent solo work but are there projects out there that you haven't really explored as much as you'd like to are there tours that you would like to do in the relatively near future granted you've got a lot going on in your life but i mean what do you foresee you know for the road ahead are, are there things that are you're really dying to do at this point yeah i mean it's these things kind of appear Sometimes they materialize, sometimes you have to seek them out. But I was in the process of planning a tour like last October and it just kind of, I I don't want to go so far as to say it fell through, but it just didn't feel like the right time, especially like in the wake of my grieving process after my dad passed and various other things like deciding I wanted to have a career shift. I was just like, I'm not going to be able to bring my best to this. So it kind of got postponed and hasn't really been reformulated, but I definitely, you know, I would love to to do a proper tour again at some point. I think at this stage being my last, you know, full US tour was eight years ago, which is kind of crazy to, to think about. But yeah. I think at this point I'd want to limit it to more like two weeks. I think that's a good length for a tour, like five weeks is just too much. Plus, granted, there bears mentioning that I believe the entire kind of universe of touring has shifted, not only because yeah. of COVID, but it's just like the whole music distribution system has shifted. I'm not really big on merch which I know is how a lot of people fund their trips. Venues are less receptive to, you know, smaller draws these days, it seems like. And that's fine. I feel like I've had a a ton of extremely valuable, memorable experiences touring, and I feel infinitely lucky for that. Um, But whatever comes together with that would be great. Um, Raph and I have talked about playing some shows for the Orca's record, which knowing knowing the complexity of the material would involve a lot of work. Um, I would very much like to do that. Um, at this point, I don't want to speak too soon, but we, you know, the record should be out this year, hopefully by early summer, but it's still moving again. We just got masters. So usually it's at least a few months beyond that. So that's, I feel like that's the most likely next step is that he and I will put together uh, some kind of live thing. What sucks is that we lost a lot of the 
original material for our first two records because all of his stuff got stolen in 2014. Oh, right. Yeah. When he and Rita were moving from Seattle, like literally their entire U-Haul truck got stolen the night before they were about to leave with all of his hard drives, all the shit. So yeah, those first the first two Orcas records are basically gone. And if we wanted to do any songs from those, we'd have to re-engineer them essentially and like re-record whatever we wanted to do or reimagine them, which could be fun, but again, would be a lot of work. A lot of work, um, yep. <laughs> so I've got that in my sights. It does feel a little bit daunting at this point because he's, you know, He's like my older brother. We, we refer to each other as brothers. And he always comes from a place of caring and just wanting me to do my best and perform at the level that he knows that I can. But like, he's also a pretty demanding director. And and, um, yep. and right. so again, it comes from a place of love. That's not a, a dig or a negative thing. It's ultimately like I sometimes need somebody like that to, to push me a little to, to a higher level. You know? So I know that we have a lot of demands for time and energy. Sure. Um, yep. And, you know, luckily that's part of the reason I moved out here, honestly, not only for Molly, but for being close to his studio. And so the fact that I can get out there in an hour on the train is makes it less daunting. I think like if I were still out West, it might not even be a possibility. And other than that, like, yeah, I've got the Orca's record coming out. I've got a, like a much smaller release, a lathe cut for Whited Sepulcher records coming out in a couple months. Yep. Great label. Molly's doing the artwork for that. Yeah. Ryan is amazing. And then beyond that, got something cooking with Zach Frizzell for later in the year too, but nothing has been announced, so I shouldn't say anything about it. Not a, not a huge deal, but there are a couple other like instrumental things in the way. Yeah. Just my, yeah, mostly just focusing on uh, avoiding a midlife crisis at this point. <laughs> but, <laughs> no small yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a lot to be. I'm trying to focus on what I've got to be grateful for. I feel like you know I passed through a. a dark tunnel last year like a lot of people and just the light is looking pretty bright right now yeah so i'm grateful for that just pushing on keep staying responsible i'm really glad to be sober now and making good changes and good choices and got a powerful level of like love and gratitude in my life which yeah. you know that's that comes in waves too it's similar to creativity yep but I, i'm trying to avoid being the kind of person that thinks like well, when's the other shoe going to drop? You know? but for now, pretty good. Yeah. Well, after the last couple of years, I don't feel like anyone could blame us for thinking like that. And again, yeah, it's a very separate conversation that doesn't really carry over here, but I'm just, it's hard not to think about November too. And especially like if I go to work for the school that's primarily serving like underserved communities, this whole political cycle is going to be very relevant. You know? Yeah. It always, it always is particularly so. I was on the phone with uh, Marcus last night and we were talking about oh, cool. the work that he did for the Whitney Biennial a couple of years ago, that words of concern mm-hmm. piece that he did. And it just feels like we were joking, man, it's like, it's all coming right back around. Like the same things that we were all worried about back then are, it's just a rehash of all that again. So trying to gear up yeah. for that as well. That's a very valid concern. Yeah. It is a mystifying trip, but I, I, I do. Yeah. Let's just say I wish there were better choices. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a good way to end it here. Thank sure. you so much, Tom, for taking the time to speak. Yeah, man, total pleasure. Really, really good to catch up. I know your life's in a fairly busy place too, but I hope everything goes smoothly from here. 
Yeah, it's good to connect with you, though, and hear a little more about, you know, the work you do and how you do it and what the thoughts are behind it. So really appreciate the insight. Thanks for listening to Sound Methods. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information on Tom and his music and where you can support him. Also be sure to check out the Substack page for Sound Methods, where I have included a detailed transcription with links, photos, and additional context from our conversation today. Thanks again, and see you next time.